Okay, um, Lord willing, we're going to finish up today in First Peter and start into Second Peter next week. But we are still in our study of First and Second Peter. Obviously, uh, these are two books written by any guesses? Peter. There we go. <laughs> You've been here before. Uh, written by the Apostle Peter, and this is our prepared series. Uh, now, Peter wrote these letters. I'm going to do this as quickly as I possibly can, give you a brief recap because we have a lot to cover. Uh, but Peter wrote these letters to believing Jews who have been dispersed throughout. Uh, the Gentile nations. And the reason they were dispersed throughout the Gentile nations was they were getting a lot of persecution in Jerusalem from the Orthodox Jews because they had, uh, you know, because they'd become Christians. Uh, and that was pretty heavy on them, and they didn't like that. So they left and wanted to go out into Gentile nations, specifically around Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, and they thought they'd have less persecution there until they ran into uh, a crazy ruler named Nero, uh, who was just certifiably insane. Uh, and he I mean he was just murder at will. Uh, really, he was he was a sociopath and a psychopath together, I believe. But he um, one day decided he was just going to burn Rome down. So he burned his own his own country down and watched it burn for six days. Uh, and when the people demanded answers, he said, "Simple, it was the Christians." So the persecution got even worse. So he's been trying to teach them. Peter's been trying to teach them how to remain faithful uh, despite their sufferings. Now, I titled today's message, Farewell and Fair Warning, because that's what chapter 5 is, okay? Peter always looked for an advantage, a way he could, he could you know, get his message out to more people uh, and to instruct leaders and to guide people. He looked for every opportunity he could, and even in the closing of this first letter, this first book, uh, was no exception. He used this as an opportunity to kind of teach them, uh, both leaders and lay people, how to work together successfully despite all the persecution that was coming on them, uh, and there was a lot of them coming on them. And so um, the one thing I think we're going to take out of this last chapter is it, it really kind of pulls it all together as uh, you need to be a team in your efforts to beat this, this persecution and the struggles of this world if you're going to be successful. So uh, he, he really wanted them to embrace their situation. So right now we're going we're gonna to dive into chapter 5, um, and he basically is going to teach us the only way we're going to have success is just simply trusting in God despite what's going on around us. So let's look at this. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Whew, that's fast I could get through that. I'm out of breath. Okay. Uh, it says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. OK, there's so much in that one verse there. Elder in the Greek is a word uh, presbyteros. And, and what it means is an old or mature man. I know. Save your jokes. Old or mature man. So in the context here, Peter was referring to men who were older and more mature in their faith. That's what he was talking about, more mature in their faith, okay? So the word elder in verse 1 uh, is talking about the church leaders, the men who are older and more mature in their faith, who have been appointed leaders of a church, okay? That's who he was writing to, and that's who he was addressing chapter 5 to. See, I'm not going to get into the church government too much, but God designed church government to be ran by elders. It's not supposed to be congregationally ran. It's not supposed to be ran, you know, through deacon boards and things like that. Throughout Scripture, you see that the design of the church is always meant to be elder ran. That's why you had to be very uh, careful how you selected your elders. Now, um, in verse 1, Peter immediately identifies himself. You notice he called himself a fellow elder, and he immediately does that before he even gets started. Now, why? Well, the reason is he wanted them to understand the burdens and the blessing of leadership. He wanted them to know that he, he understood that. He'd been there, and he wanted to make sure they understood how important it was. And he also wanted to make sure that they didn't think that he thought he was— he didn't want to come off as, I'm better than you. Okay, so he wanted to say, I'm one of you. I'm just a fellow elder. I'm, I'm in this battle with you, right? And now remember, he's been trying to teach them how to be confident. 
uh, amidst all this persecution that they were facing. So basically he was saying, I've experienced this, and I want you to understand that I do, I can speak intelligently about this. So he explained his life with Jesus and how it empowered him to serve with confidence. And not just any confidence, a confidence that he had despite unbelievable persecution. I mean, they wouldn't even face the kind of persecution that Peter was going to face, right? And he had not only witnessed him, he had, he had been a part of a lot of heavy persecutions. And first he said that he was a witness of the suffering of Christ. Now, this meant, listen, I didn't read about Christ's suffering. I was there. I walked with him. I got to see his ministry. I got to see his miracles. I got to see him crucified. I was with him through the entirety of his ministry, right? And I saw things that would blow your mind. This is what he was trying to tell him. And the reason that was so important was those readers would have immediately understood that that made him one of the apostles. They would have identified him as one of the apostles. And the apostles had what's called apostolic authority. They were like the foremost authority on establishing New Testament churches. If there was a debate, it went back to the apostles, right? They were the authority. So he was trying to establish that, hey, I've been there. I've witnessed what happened in the life of Christ. I witnessed his crucifixion. It changed who I am. And so I'm speaking with the authority that he gave me to help you uh, learn to get through this. Because history shows us that he witnessed Jesus' sufferings, and in several cases, he also experienced them. I think when we think about Peter, we just think about the things he did wrong. We think about, you know, him getting out of the boat, and then, you know, he loses focus and starts to sink, and everybody goes, oh, that doubtful Peter. How many of you would have got out of the boat? You know what I mean? Seriously, there's a big storm raging, and Jesus says, get out and walk in the water. How many of you would have said, call somebody else, right? So he had the guts to step out. Uh, he's the one that pulled the sword and cut off the soldier's ear, and Jesus healed the ear and said, hey, you weren't, you know, this has to happen. And people go, oh, that dumb Peter. Well, listen, how many of you would have stood up to those guards? You know what I mean? So one thing you have to remember is, you know, yeah, he made some mistakes, but he also did some very brave things in the name of Christ, and he suffered greatly uh, in the name of Christ. So that's what he was talking about. Then he said uh, he was a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, this was Peter saying, yeah, I've experienced all those things. I've experienced the difficulties. I've seen the persecution, but I want you to understand something. I know that you're being persecuted, but I know that from for being being faithful during my persecution, I know that I'm going to be a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. This is him saying, yeah, we're going to suffer right now. But because we're staying faithful, we are going to be blessed because of this. God sees your faithfulness amidst all this persecution. He sees how you don't back off. And someday we're going to be a part of his glory. We're going to be blessed, whether it be in his kingdom or whether it be in their daily life. God was going to bless them for that. And he wanted them to keep that perspective. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 16. He says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. Listen to this. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So this is talking about what Paul's talking about is the Jewish believer looked forward to serving in the millennial kingdom. We think about heaven, and I know we get the wrong picture of it. You know, like, I don't know where we got harps and wings and babies flying around in diapers, but that's how we look at it. They looked at it as getting a chance to serve under the Messiah in the promised thousand-year kingdom where the Messiah would reign on earth. There was nothing more important to them than being found faithful enough to serve with the Messiah in that time when he would reign on earth. So when he talks about being joint heirs with Christ and those who suffer with Christ will also be glorified with him, 
there's an inheritance you get as a believer. All of us will enter the millennial kingdom. Any believer, uh, no matter faithful or not, will enter the millennial kingdom where Christ will be the king. But only those who were faithful in their life will get to serve in that kingdom. So this is what he was telling them. Don't forget why we do this. Don't forget that, yes, they're persecuting us, but look at the long game. They might be persecuting us now, but we will have an eternity with Christ. So this is his way of trying to encourage them a little bit. One thing I think is no matter what capacity you serve God in, having that same confidence that he had was so important. And I see that fading, and it really bothers me. Because I think we don't know how to play the long game in our faith anymore. Okay, And and a lot of that is because we've gotten used to kind of instant gratification. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But uh, serving God is kind of like investing in your retirement plan. Okay, how many people here invested in a retirement plan? Oh, Lord, we need to get a financial class going. Anyway, now, when you're investing in, uh, in your retirement, there are certain sacrifices you have to make today in order to have some joy later in life, right? My retirement plan is die. I'm not, I don't have one. But, you know, generally most people, they save and they put away and they, and they try to, you know, they make it hurt a little bit so that when they're in their later years, they can enjoy their life uh, and the finances that come as a result of that sacrifice. So there's a long game when we're involved in our, in our investment. Well, you know, the same thing kind of works with God. See, if you're serving God only for the blessings of the present, then you're going to be really disappointed. Because that's why we always tell people, don't get caught up in the emotion. And don't get caught up in the feelings of your faith. Right, Because those may happen right now, and, and they might make you feel all warm and fuzzy right now. But we're not in it for the right now. We're in it for the long haul. We are in this so that we can change people's lives, not just today, but forever. So here's the thing you got to look at. You know, We're presently involved in something that is not going to always turn out good. I don't know if you realize this. We are in a spiritual battle right now. Now, you may not be able to see it. But we are in a spiritual battle, and you see the evidence of us all around. How many people have watched some stuff on the news lately and they just went, can it get worse? Has anybody else thought that? Some of the stuff that's coming to me from high schoolers that they're seeing in high school right now blows my mind. Literally, it, I, I don't even want to go there. It just blows my mind. And we are in a spiritual battle, and we see it in our schools. We see it all in our government. We see it around the world. We are in a spiritual battle that is so important, and we are fighting for the souls of humanity because this world is trying to get people to forget that God even exists. It's happening everywhere. So in the present, while we're in this battle, we're going to get punched in the nose a few times. We're going to suffer at the hands of the world a few times. That's going to happen. There's going to be suffering for God in this present. But we have to remember that that will turn into blessing in our futures. See, as believers, we shouldn't focus on the present struggles and all the persecutions that we're going through right now. We should be more focused on the promises God made and believing and resting in the promises that God made. Remember, something I think we forget about the spiritual battle we're in. Remember, there's battles won and lost in wars. And there's a lot of battles won and lost in wars before a winner is determined, right? Well, for believers, we have a different perspective. See, we're not like the common soldier here on earth that goes into battle wondering if they're going to win. We're going into a battle. We're going into a war knowing we might lose a battle here and there. But in the end, we know we win. I mean, our perspective is at the end of the day, we know we win. So why are we giving up? We know we're going to win. 
And that's what Peter was kind of trying to get through here. Now let's move to verses 2 through 5. He says, shepherd the flock. Remember, he's talking to elders and pastors. Verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, uh, voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Uh, nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, you might want to underscore that, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You young men, uh, younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Peter's instructions here get pretty cool here in verse 2. They're really to the point. He says, okay, so elders... He's saying, pastors, elders, let me just make this plain to you. Shepherd your flock. Focus on shepherding your flock. Okay, now the word shepherd is from the Greek word poimino, and it means to care for, to guide, or to help. That's what it means. And the word shepherd in verse 2 is a verb. Okay, Peter's not talking about a title in verse 2. He's talking about an action. Shepherd your flock. He's saying, this is something I want you to do. I want you to shepherd them. All right, now... The Greek word for flock is poimneum, and it means a group of followers. Now, to make it kind of easier, I like how the contemporary English version translated this. First uh, Peter 5, 2, the first part here, it says, Just as shepherds watch over their sheep, you must watch over everyone God has placed in your care. That's what Peter was saying. He was saying, listen, these are the people God has given you to provide for, to care for, to protect. Do your job. Do your job. Peter was telling the pastors and elders, just stay focused on your job as shepherds. Don't let the persecution pull you off. Don't get sidetracked with all the arguments and all the stuff going on around you. Stay focused on your job. And here's what that job entailed. Serving their flock through godly leadership and direction. That's all they had to do. And that's enough. Now, in the second part of verse 2 and into verse 3, Peter teaches them what that leadership looks like. Look at this. First Peter 5, 2. Starting the second part there. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording over the allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. Now the phrase exercising oversight, okay? We've got to understand what that means. Exercising oversight in the Greek is the word episcopeo. Okay, and episcopeo means to be responsible for the care of a group of people. And this word even implies that it's talking about within a congregation. That it implies that's what it's talking about. So what Peter was doing was encouraging them to embrace their responsibility as caretakers. See, what was happening was they were getting sidetracked. They were worried about what the Romans thought of them. They were worried about what the Jews thought of them. They were worried about what the pagans thought of them. And they were forgetting that you're being distracted from your job. Your job is to pastor your flock, shepherd your flock. So he wants to you know, describe what... What should and should not motivate an elder so that they can do the job well. First, he said, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Meaning, nobody can force you to be an elder or a pastor. Okay, nobody can force you to be an elder or a pastor. It can't happen. It has to be voluntary. But it's not only voluntary, it has to be a calling. That's what he means by according to the will of God. It's a calling or a commission from God. Now listen, people say, how do we know if you're being called? You'll know. You will know, right? And here's something you have to understand. Before pursuing this spiritual leadership position, make sure God is calling you. I can't tell you how many young men have gone to seminary to become a pastor and they come out as clueless as when they went in because God wasn't calling them to that job. 
They can have all the book knowledge in the world. If they're not called to that ministry, they're not going to succeed in that ministry. You have to make sure that this is what God wants you to do, right? It's so, so important that we understand that. See, church leadership is rewarding. I love my job. I never feel burdened by the fact that I'm a pastor. I love my job. And Christian leadership is rewarding. But believe me, it's also challenging and it's also very lonely. Okay, it is a job after all. It is. It can be challenging and it can be lonely. There's always someone judging you who thinks they can do it better. Trust me. Over 25 years now, I've been preaching and, and I've been a uh, pastor at this church. Well, actually, actually, this Easter will be 25 years we've been in church. Right? 25 years we've been here. And 25 years I have seen some some stuff. Let me put it that way. In 25 years, and believe me, there are people always judging you, playing Monday morning quarterback after you make a decision. Right? Oh, here's the way I would have done it. I'm like, well. If you're applying, I'll give you the job, right? And there's someone, I always think they can do it better. There's always someone trying to lead your flock away or deceive them. That's always happening. There's always that pastor in town that's trying to, you know, pick off other people's congregation. And they say, does that make you mad? No, if the Holy Spirit doesn't keep you here, I don't want to keep you here either. You know what I mean? If, if you can be picked off, maybe you don't belong here. But that's always going to happen, right? That's happening all the time, right? And... Here's a big one. I mean, you're usually held to these unrealistic expectations that only Jesus can meet. I mean, pastors aren't supposed to ever do anything wrong. We're never supposed to get mad, right? We're always supposed to be joyful, right? And although I meet that, <laughs> not really. But anytime you do something that's a little bit human, they judge you. That's why I've been very honest with you guys from day one. Listen, I sin. I got record of it if you'd like to see it. I sin, I'm not perfect, so don't put me on a pedestal. There's also those that are always wanting to blame you for everything that's going wrong in their life. Believe me, it's difficult. There are difficulties, there are struggles that come with ministry. So what Peter was saying is if God hasn't called you, run. Avoid, avoid ministry like the plague. Don't become a leader if God hasn't called you for it. Run, because if you don't, it will probably destroy you. You realize the average expect uh, the average uh, stay of a pastor before they burn out is six years. Six years. So I mean I, that means I've burned out like six times. No, I've not burned out. I don't think anyway. So I mean he's saying, listen, make sure you're called because it will destroy you if you're not called. Right now, he said, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Okay, in the Greek, the uh, sordid gain means personal financial gain driven by greed. Personal financial gain driven by greed. Now, he wasn't saying that elders and pastors couldn't be full-time paid professionals. That's not what he was saying. He was saying that their motivation shouldn't be financial. It should be spiritual. So make sure if you're going to be a leader that your motivation is spiritual. Instead, he said that we're to serve out of eagerness. Now, in the Greek, this actually means excitement. It means you serve because you're excited to see what God will do through you other people and in their lives i think that's huge right and finally he says uh nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge what he meant here was elders are not to lead like a dictator or a totalitarian that's not the way it's supposed to be if you go to a church and they have him set up like a king run that is not the way it's supposed to be i'm set up more like the court jester but i'm just saying if they're set up like a king you should run all right now i love this because a pastor, what we forget about is our authority, pastors and elders, it's not ours. We don't have our own authority. The authority we have is on loan from God. 
we actually don't have authority other than the authority that he bestows upon us, right? And instead, I think we should lead by example rather than trying to lead like a dictator. And that's what Peter was telling them to do. If you want people to follow you, lead by example. Don't just act like Hitler because it's not going to work. First of all, people who are forced to follow you will never give you 110%. Can you imagine being forced to marry somebody? Ask Sandy, it was tough for her. Not easy. Imagine being forced to marry somebody. You're not going to put all you have into that marriage. Being forced to be a leader, people will not, or being forced to follow a leader, you're not going to give them 100%. But if you can be a leader they can relate to, who leads out of love, they'll give that person 110%. Now, uh, next Peter is really going to encourage them because uh, he wants them to understand there's a reward coming with Jesus. I love this, First Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd, notice it's capital C and capital S. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay? And earlier I said that, you know, the authority pastors and elders have is from God. The reason that is is because there really is only one shepherd. There really is only one real pastor in this deal. And that's Jesus. He is the chief shepherd. Right? He's the chief shepherd. All of us pastors and elders, we're kind of like under-shepherds. We're kind of like the shepherds that the head shepherd sends out because the flock's really big and puts us at different areas to watch them over the fields. We're kind of like under-shepherds. And as under-shepherds, elders and pastors are supposed to be serving the will of the shepherd. This is what Peter was trying to get through here. So what does, you know, protecting and preparing God's flock look like? Because that's our job. Our job is to protect and prepare God's flock to succeed spiritually. And Peter even tells what that looks like. And we'll look at that here in just a minute. But to protect the flock from the traps of the enemy, the first thing we have to do as pastors, our job is to teach the word. Now, pulpits around the world, and that bothers me, have become political. They have gotten involved in social issues they shouldn't be involved in. Our job is to love our flock and to teach them the word of God so that they can be successful. And you will not be successful because of denomination. You will not be successful because you've been in a generational church. You'll be successful because you know the word of God. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately what? Handling the word of truth. I can tell this is early. All right. Basically, he's, God's word prepares us two different ways. And both of them are really important. First of all, it, it prepares us to grow and to become personally closer in a relationship with God. That's one thing the Word of God does. It draws us into a relationship with God, a close personal walk with Him. And the second thing it does is it teaches us how to share our faith so that we can draw others into that personal walk. As, chief she- as the chief shepherd has appointed, elders and pastors are supposed to be encouraging that and leading people into that kind of relationship, right? Now... Paul discussed this concept, if you look at Galatians 3, 23 and 24, because the whole thing Peter's trying to do is trying to get him to have a, a perspective of the future. And Paul said in Galatians, I'm sorry, Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily, what? Okay, you guys are terrible. We got to do this. So wake up. We got coffee. It's free. Y'all can have some if you want it. All right. It says, whatever you do, do your work, what? Heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Now, why do we do that? Verse 24, it says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Paul was saying the same thing Peter was. He was saying, listen, 
Stop worrying about what everybody else thinks. Stop worrying about the world and stop worrying about the persecution. Stop worrying about the White House. Stop worrying about what's going on in other countries. First and foremost, worry about what's going on in here. Worry about what God is doing in your life and how you're sharing that with others. Worry about that first. You serve God, not the world. And at the end of the time, it's not going to matter what the world thinks of you, but it will matter what God thinks of you. All right? This is what he's trying to tell him. And I think that in the world today, the reason we struggle with this is we've come to expect this instant gratification. Now, I'm guilty of what I'm about to say. I'm just going to tell you that right, right off the bat. But we like to be able to sit on the couch and order from Amazon and get it the next day. How many people do a lot of that? Be honest. I will drive outside your house and see the packages and take a picture, I swear. <laughs> right? We like that, don't we? How many people have ever bought something because you were tired and sleeping late at night and didn't realize you did it? Okay, maybe that's just me. I remember I was at a tournament one time, and I was looking through Amazon, and I fell asleep, and I woke up the next day, and when I got home from the tournament, someone had sent me a metal wallet. I ordered that. (laughs) So much for one-touch purchases. But we like that. And you ever notice, we even get mad if we order something, and the next day it doesn't come. I'm going to admit something. I, I called Amazon. Your pastor is so long-suffering. I called Amazon, and I said, like, what did I do to you? They're like, what? I said, why don't you put on there next day delivery, except for Chris Mosley on 1105 Woodland Drive in Kinnaville, Indiana, because I never get it in one day. But that's how we are. We're so used to that. We like ordering pizza from our couch. We don't even have to call them anymore. We can use an app and order pizza from the couch. And then we get mad if it's wrong. Well, you didn't talk to anybody, you know? But we want that instant gratification, right? And now it seems that we've started to view our faith or living our faith the exact same way. We think, well, if I endure persecution, what do I get today? Well, it doesn't always work that way. You're, you're, you're working for the long haul. Well, that's crazy. I can call Amazon and get it tomorrow. Why should I be persecuted today? You know what I mean? We've, we've got that mentality about suffering. We're, we're not willing to put up with persecution unless we're going to get blessed today, unless it happens today. That's what we want. This seems crazy to wait on a blessing that's coming. I want it now. Like I get with Amazon, like I get with McDonald's. You know, that's what we want. But Peter didn't want his elders being short-sighted about their sufferings. He wanted them to understand that, that those who faithfully and patiently endure their persecution, God will reward them and will reward them in big ways. Now, in verse 5, and I'm trying to get through this because there's a lot we got to cover here in the end. In verse 5, uh, Peter wanted to also kind of throw a shout-out to the young men. I'll explain what that means. First uh, Peter 5, 5 says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Now notice he said, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And what? All of you. All of you, clothe yourselves, so the entire congregation, uh, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him, because what? Because he cares for you. Now, in the, Greek, in the Greek, the word for young men is naos, and it really means new or recent. That's what it means. So someone could be 70 years old, just get saved and come into the church, and they would fall under that definition of young men, right? It's talking, it really means something that's new or something that's recent. So he was addressing these new believers that were just coming into the church, maybe even some of the new elders that were coming up. Because here's the thing, one problem that often accompanies youth or newness is pride, right, and impulsiveness, right, and a lot of times the, 
the young people who are young to their faith often try to impress the older ones by doing things they really shouldn't do. And what he was saying is, listen, don't do that. Just be humble, listen to the leadership, read the word of God, and let God make you into the person he wants you to be. And at the right time, he'll lift you up. Because being humble and being Christ-like are synonymous. Now, here's where we get into the part everybody's probably been waiting for. 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit. I love this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's a lot here. Okay? So, in verse 8, Peter talked to his readers as if they'd humbled themselves already. So he's like assuming they'd already humbled themselves and taken him to the next set of directions. And in 6 and 7, Peter spoke of how blessed those who humble themselves before God really are. He said that when the humble cast their anxieties on God, he will exalt them. We just read that, right? And the Greek word for exalt is hoopso, meaning to elevate, promote, or to lift up. So in verses 8 through 11, he gave an example of how God may do that in relation to their persecution. See, back then, lions were pretty common. They're not common around here, but they were pretty common back then. All right, it was something that they all were pretty familiar with, so that's why he used this illustration of a lion. See, lions typically only roar after they've caught their prey. After they've caught their prey. Because if they walked around roaring before they caught their prey, I'm going to say they wouldn't catch their prey. It would know they were coming, right? So they normally only roar, roar after they caught their prey, right? Uh, now, Peter was saying that unlike the lion, the enemy says walks around like a roaring lion. The enemy's walking around roaring before he ever catches his prey. Part of that's probably arrogance. Who knows? But we should be able to hear the enemy coming is what Peter is trying to say there. Unless the only reason we shouldn't know the enemy's coming is if you don't know what his roar sounds like. But if you know what the roar of the enemy sounds like, you should be able to avoid him. Now, we all know what the roar of a lion sounds like. Okay, I want you to put yourself in this situation. Imagine you went on a safari in Africa. And you got out the Jeep, because that's what we always do in movies. You get out of the Jeep, and you're going over to the weeds. I don't know, let's say you're going to the bathroom, and you hear a growl of a lion. What do you do? You run. Do you wait around and say, let's see if it's tame? Let's see if it has a collar? You run. Because you hear... Something coming that could potentially destroy you. Well, Peter was saying the enemy walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's already roaring, looking for us. He's saying you should be able to hear it coming unless you don't know what the enemy's roar sounds like. So he was trying to illustrate that believers need to be able to identify the attacks of the enemy. So that they can hear him coming and avoid the attempts to destroy him. Now people ask, well, what does the enemy's roar sound like or how do we identify him? The enemy's roar for us comes in several different forms, right? Several different ways, but they're all dangerous. For example, it comes in the form of persecution, and it comes in the form of injustice. And I'll explain that. I know that sounds strange. But when believers are being persecuted or suffering injustice, we become tempted. The enemy tempts us with persecution. That's what was happening to these people. They're being tempted because they're tempted to respond to that persecution in an ungodly way, like through violence. Right? And listen, I don't care what group it is. If you're responding to something as a believer with violence, you're not doing it God's way. If you're, you know, responding to a persecution by tearing other people down, you're not doing it God's way. 
If you feel persecuted and your answer is to, is to just hide from the problem and, and, and pretend it's not there, you're going to end up being devoured. That's not God's way, okay? But we get tempted when we're persecuted to, be, to respond the wrong way. We get tempted to just give up. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to admit it, but everybody here at one time or another says, why am I doing this? Things are going so rough. Has anybody here ever looked around when things are going bad in your life and you feel like the world is against you and you're like, why am I even doing this? Where are you at, God? Why am I not being delivered? Where's my Red Sea being parted? You know, where is the Lord coming walking on the water in the middle of my storms? We all feel like a baby sometime and do that, don't we? All right, we all have that temptation. That's what he's talking about. That's one of the roars of that lion, the roars of the devil. He's trying to get us to give up, right? Right, and there's there's more than that. We even get tempted sometimes, like, you know what, if you can't beat them, join them. We do. More Christians are assimilating to the world than are standing up to it right now. It's unbelievable. Because, you know, when you get to the point where you don't know someone's a Christian until they tell you, we have a problem in the churches. You should be able to tell. It isn't always that way. Right, but when they give in to temptations, they're just falling into that trap. They're not hearing the enemy. And Peter wanted his readers to realize that their persecution and temptation was really just the enemy's roar. And they needed to be able to identify that so they could not be distracted and destroyed. Now, let's move on. He wants to, now that we know the tactics, he wants to tell us how to escape them. Verse 9 says, but resist him, who? The enemy. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering is being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how do we fend off the enemy's attack? He explains it right here. By resisting the temptation to give up, to give in, or to give ground to the enemy. Resisting that temptation. Instead, when we feel that pressure, just give it to God. And trust God to be the God he is. He'll deal with it in his time. Then he said, listen, it's not impossible. There are believers all around the world who are, who are getting through these persecutions using this method. You know, we're spoiled over here. We're big time spoiled. Everyone should do a mission, in my opinion. Now, will everybody like it? No. But everybody should do one. Because you will learn something. We don't have it rough over here. At all. We don't have it rough. We get mad. We get mad because somebody on the internet says something nasty about our faith. You poor baby. You go over to the Sudan, there are people who are being killed because they admit they're a believer. In China, there are people sneaking into each other's basements because someone has found four or five pages of a Bible they can study together. That's what's going on in those countries. There are people in the Middle East who hide in bunkers to have church services. Right? Yet they still have them. Why? Because the risk is worth it to them. They love God that much. We don't even face that kind of persecution anymore. We don't even face it. And yet we're afraid to stand up. For what little persecution we have, we're afraid to stand up. We have forgotten that God is faithful. And no matter what our circumstances, God will deliver us if we're faithful. We live in times where it seems like we hear the roar of the enemy all around us. I was thinking about this when I was preparing this message I have something playing in the background all the time because my ears ring 24-7. And uh, it happened to be, I don't know, one of the newscasts. I don't remember which one. They're all lying anyway. But it was one of them. And so for two hours, I heard tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. There was nothing good. And I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be paying attention to it, but I did for some reason. And I started thinking, geez, 
the enemy is all around us. He is trying to deafen us with his roar so that we, we can't even focus on God. Well, Peter said, resist him. You know what I think in our day and age? Shut the TV off. Yeah, I mean, spend a little bit of time looking in the face of your family rather than looking in the glowing screen of your phone. You know, go to dinner. Here's a crazy idea. Put your phones up. The day will come when you wish you had the time to sit at that table with your family again. You'll wish you had your phone time taken away so you could enjoy the time you have with your family. Resist the devil. Simple. Don't give in to everything he's doing. Remember who you are and why you're here. That's what he was talking about. So, so important. Listen, when you have the right attitude, you really don't get afraid when the devil's coming because you know God's going to be on your side. Now, finally, in verses 12 through 14, Peter says his farewells and he closes his first letter. And we'll jump up, we'll get into the next letter next week. So 1 Peter 5, 12, it says, Through Sylvanius, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen uh, together with you, sends you greetings, uh, and, do, and so does my son Mark. Uh, she who is in Babylon is speaking about an, a sister church, is what that's talking about. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ. Okay, one thing I got to pull out of that real quick. In their culture, they would greet each other by kissing each other on each side of the face. That is not our culture. Do not kiss me. That's not what this is saying. You know, one translation says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And so I, I've, uh, one of the guys I, I, when I was training, I trained with, he came up and he said, come here, want me to greet you with a holy kiss? I said, you won't, you'll get another greeting. It won't be a kiss back. I promise you that. But that, though, basically what it's saying is he's pleading with us. Remember who's on your side. He's saying, greet each other with a holy kiss, meaning welcome the sight of someone who's in the same battle you are. Embrace those who are struggling like you're struggling to see the will of God done and know and encourage each other that someday it's going to be worth it. So that's, that's kind of where we're going to stop there today. We'll pick up there next week as we continue on in Second Peter. So I'm asking you, would to please bow your heads. Is this your first time? We always like to give an invitation. If there's someone here who's not sure where they stand or they just want prayer, I want to pray for you. So if you just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down, I'm not going to chase you down, but I will pray. Bless those people. I will pray for you. Bless those people. And listen, believers, I always pray for us. You know, I've been really burdened. Realistically, it started really heavily back in 2020. I've been really burdened because it feels like things are winding down. But when you look around, I don't see Christians who are in the mode of, let's get things done. Let's reach as many as we can. We really need to get more focused on what we're here for and why we're here. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love and your compassion and your mercy and your grace. I can't even understand how you can love someone like me. I don't understand how you can... Send your son to die innocently on a cross to give eternal life to the very people who will reject you. But I'm so thankful that you have that much love for us. And I just pray, God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, push it out of their mind so that they might believe the promises you made to us in Scripture that if they can believe what Jesus did was enough, it'll guarantee their eternal life. And if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. But God, for those of us who are believers, 
Sometimes I think we just get so distracted. Instead of trying to win the world, I think we try to blend in with the world. Lord, give us a boldness like Peter and Paul had. Let us not be afraid to be persecuted. Let us be willing to stand out with the hope that someone might see the love that's driving us to stand out and might come to you. Let us be examples and live what we profess. And God, as we leave here, we just pray that you would keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.